Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Tonight, I'll be reading From King Arthur and His Knights by Maud Radford Warren. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Arthur's Court and the Order of the Round Table After Arthur had proved his prowess in his contest with the eleven kings, he decided to establish his court 
and the order of the round table. The place he chose was the city of Camelot in Wales, which had a good situation, being built upon a hill. He called the wise Merlin and ordered him to make a great palace on the summit of the hill. Through his powers of enchantment, Merlin was able to do this very quickly, and within a week the king and his personal attendants were settled in the palace. The main part consisted of a great assembly hall built of white marble, the roof of which seemed to be upheld by pillars of green and red porphyry, and was surmounted by magnificent towers. The outside walls of the hall were covered with beautiful rows of sculpture. The lowest row represented wild beasts slaying men. The second row represented men slaying wild beasts. The third represented warriors who were peaceful, good men. The fourth showed men with growing wings. Over all was a winged statue with the face of Arthur. Merlin meant to show by means of the first row that formerly evil in men was greater than good. By the second that men began to conquer the evil in themselves, which in time caused them to become really good, noble, and peace-loving men, as in the third row. And finally, through the refining influence of good King Arthur and his wise helpers, men would grow to be almost as perfect as the angels. The main doorway was in the shape of an arch, upheld by pillars of dark yellow marble. The hall was lighted by fourteen great windows, through which the light streamed in soft colours upon the marble floors. Between these windows and along the cornices were beautiful decorations. There were carvings in white marble of birds and beasts and twining vines. There was a mosaic work of black and yellow and pink marble and of lapis lazuli, as blue as a lake when the clear sun shines full upon its surface. Under the windows were many stone shields, beneath each of which was the name of a knight. Some shields were blazoned with gold, some were carved, and some were blank. The walls were hung with beautiful tapestries which had been woven by the ladies of the land for Arthur's new palace. On each had been pictured some episode from the life of King Arthur. The drawing of the magic sword from the anvil, the finding of the good sword Excalibur, his deeds of justice and acts of kindness, and his many battles and wars. The two wings of the palace contained the dining hall and kitchen, and the living apartments of all the members of the court who made their home with the king. The dining hall was only a little less beautiful than Arthur's great assembly hall. The walls were hung with cloths of scarlet and gold. The deep fireplace was supported by four bronze pillars. In the middle of the room were long tables made of oak boards set on ivory trestles. At a banquet, the walls were hung with garlands of flowers or festoons of branches. The great kitchen had stone walls and stone flagging. The fireplace was so large that there was room for a whole ox to be roasted, and above hung cranes from which half a dozen kettles could be suspended, and pots of such a size that pigs could be boiled whole in them. All about the walls were cupboards, 
Some are full of plates of wood, iron, steel, silver and gold. And flagons, cups, bowls and salt cellars of gold and silver. Others were used for the storing of cold meats and fruits. There were several tables on which the cooked food was cut and benches upon which the cooks rested when they were tired of serving the hungry eaters. Well might they have grown tired. Supper, the most important meal of the day, lasted from three until six, and often longer. But the cooks, and the little scullion boys who washed the pots and pans, and the attendants who carried in the food to the dining hall, all wore contentment and happiness on their faces, as they hurried about with their long blouses, tucked out of harm's way, for to serve King Arthur and his guests was considered a real privilege. The sleeping rooms were furnished with chests and chairs, and beds spread with fine linen and with ermine-lined covers. Hangings of various colours were upon the walls. On the floors were strewn rushes, and among them was thrown mint, which gave forth an agreeable odour. After Arthur, his officers and his servants had been in the palace for a few days, the king formally established his court. He invited all the knights who cared to do so to come with their families and retinues and live with him. Some preferred to remain in their own castles, but others gladly went to live with the king. Soon all were comfortably settled. The king's officers were very important members of Arthur's court. First of these came the Archbishop of Canterbury, who held the highest place in the king's regard. It was his duty to conduct the church services for Arthur and his followers, and to christen, marry, and bury the people of Camelot. Next, Sir Ulfius, as Chamberlain, superintended the care of the king's rooms. Sebrastius, who was warden, superintended the servants. Sir Kay, who was steward, had charge of all the food and the kitchen. Sir Hector, as treasurer, took care of the king's gold and rendered the accounts. Sir Geraint managed all the tournaments and outdoor sports of the knights and squires. There were other officers to help these, and all did their work faithfully and lovingly. The knights whom Arthur chose to be members of his round table were mostly selected from these officers. As members of this order, there were 150 of the knights who had shown themselves especially brave in battle and who were devoted followers of the king. Next to being king, the greatest honour which could fall to a warrior was to be made a member of the round table, for all who belonged to the order were dedicated to the service of God and mankind. There is no glory greater than such a dedication. In his great hall, Arthur had placed a huge table, made round in shape, so that there should be neither head nor foot, a higher place nor a lower place. Arthur wished all who sat there to be equals. These chosen knights were to give him counsel in times of peace and of war. It was a solemn hour when the knights took their places. The Archbishop of Canterbury blessed them and their seats. Then each one came to Arthur, who stood at the top of the assembly hall and did him homage. Next, they took their vows. They promised to be good and brave, never false 
or mean or cruel. If anyone with whom they fought begged for mercy, they would show him mercy. And they vowed never to fight for wrong cause or for money. Each year at the Feast of the Pentecost, they were to repeat these vows. Other members of Arthur's court were old, brave knights who could no longer fight, but who liked to be near the king and his warriors, and gave the wisdom of age and experience to his counsels. Young, ambitious, and promising knights, who had had but little experience in battle, and faithful squires who had had no real experience at all. Boys from six to fourteen years were pages. There were others who transformed Arthur's court to a place of grace and beauty. The mothers, wives, sisters, and daughters of the warriors. Although they did not help in the councils of war, these ladies were of great assistance in training the knights to be tender and courteous. They taught the little pages good manners and unselfishness. They assisted the knights in removing their armor when they came in tired from riding or fighting. They sat with Arthur and the knights in the evening in the dining hall, singing or playing upon harps or listening to the tales that were told. When the knights were away, the ladies stayed in their own chambers, hearing wise readings from the archbishop or other learned men, listening to Merlin's words of wisdom and embroidering the beautiful hangings and cushions which were to adorn the palace. It was a month before Arthur's court was established, and during that time the city of Camelot was a scene of continual merriment. The people of the place were glad that the king had come, for that meant much gain for them. Those of them who did not live in the palace had their houses or shops on the streets which wound about the foot of the hill. Many of the shops belonged to armorers, who had armor of all sorts for anyone who would buy. They were glad in their turn to buy the swords of famous knights, which had been used in great battles. For such weapons they could always sell again at a good price. These shopkeepers and the servants and the squires and the warriors all united to make the city of Camelot a beautiful one for the sake of their king. The streets were kept strewn with rushes and flowers. Rich awnings and silken draperies were hung from the houses. All day long, processions passed, made up of the followers of all those lords who gave allegiance to the king. They carried the banners of their masters, crimson, white, or scarlet, gold, silver, making the streets glow with color. The matching squires wore ornamented blouses, drawn in at the waist, long silk stockings, and shoes of embroidered leather. The bowmen were dressed in green kirtles, rather shorter than those of the squires, and wore dark woolen hose. They carried their bows and arrows slung across their shoulders. The servants were dressed in much the same way, except that their blouses were longer and of various colors. Many knights rode in the processions, their long plumes waving in the wind, their armor shining, and their falcons perched upon their wrists. All day long, too, bands of musicians played on flutes and timbrels and tabors and harps. Bands of young men and women sang songs in praise of the king. Storytellers went about relating old tales of famous heroes. The young men showed their strength by tumbling and wrestling, and their grace by dancing. The young women also danced. 
The wise Merlin often passed along the streets, walking silently among the merry throngs of people. Sometimes the little Dagonet danced at his side. Dagonet, the king's jester, a tiny man who made merriment for the court with his witty sayings. He always wore a tight-fitting red blouse and a peaked cap ornamented with bells, and he carried a mock scepter in the shape of a carved agri-stick. Whenever Arthur appeared before his people, church bells were joyously rung and trumpets were sounded. The king, as he rode, distributed presents to the poor people, capes and coats, mantles of serge and bushels of pence. In a dining hall at the palace, feasts were held in those days for them, and they were also open for all people who might come. When the weather was beautiful, tables were placed on the sword outside the palace, and those who cared to ate under the shade of the trees, listening to the music of the blackbirds, whose singing was almost as loud as that of the chorus of damsels who sang in the palace. Every hour the servants carried in and out great quarters of venison, roasted pheasants and herons, and young hawks, ducks and geese, all on silver platters. Curries and stews and tarts were innumerable. In the midst of the sword, a silver fountain had been set, from which flowed sweet wine. Even the great feasts of the year, which were held at Christmas, upon the day of the Passover, at Pentecost, upon Ascension Day and even St. John's Day, were not as wonderful as these feasts when the king held holiday with his people. On these days of merriment, when the people were not eating or drinking or marching in processions, they were at the tournament field, watching the combats. Here the best of Arthur's knights, mounted on strong horses and wearing heavy armor, were ranged on two sides of the field. Behind each row was a pavilion filled with the ladies. Four heralds stood ready to blow the trumpets which gave the signal for the combats. Each herald wore crimson silk stockings and crimson velvet kirtles, tight at the waist and reaching halfway to the knee. When it was time to begin, the heralds blew the trumpets, the ladies bent over eagerly, and the knights spurred their horses forward, riding with their lances in rest. In a moment, clouds of dust arose, circling up as high as the plumes on the knights' helmets, and their lances crashed against each other's shields. Many of the lances broke. Sometimes the shock of contact overthrew a knight, but no one was hurt, for the good King Arthur had ordered that the combats should be friendly. When the jousting had lasted for several hours, those knights who had shown themselves the stronger received prizes from the ladies. The prizes were suits of armor ornamented with gold and swords with jeweled hilts. The knight who, of all, was the strongest, chose the lady whom he considered most beautiful and crowned her the queen of love and beauty. During the month of feasting, Arthur made knights of some of the squires. A young squire was first obliged to show his skill in tilting at the quintain. Then his father presented him with falcons and sparrowhawks for hunting and arms and robes. He also gave robes and arms to his son's companions and to their mothers and sisters, furs and embroidered robes and belts of gold. Finally, he gave money to the singers and players and servants and to the poor people of Camelot.
At about sunset, the young squire went into the church where the Archbishop of Canterbury held a solemn service. The youth took the armor which he had chosen and placed it on the floor in front of the altar. He was then left alone, and all night long he prayed fervently to God to give him strength to be a noble and true knight. In the morning, the king came to the church, attended by his nobles and by the archbishop. The squire laid his sword on the altar, thus signifying his devotion to Christ and his determination to lead a holy life. King Arthur bound the sword and spurs on the young man, and taking Excalibur, he smote him lightly on the shoulder with it, saying, Be thou a true and faithful knight. Then the squire took a solemn oath to protect all who were in distress, to do right and to be a pure knight. After that, the Archbishop of Canterbury preached a solemn sermon. When the month of feasting and holiday was ended, the members of the court returned to their usual habits of life. The knights of the round table went forth to right wrongs and to enforce the law. All who were in distress came to the king for help. And to the whole country, Arthur's court was famous as a place where unkindness was never done and where truth, justice, and love reigned. King Arthur and the Princess Guinevere After Arthur had been established in his court for some time, his neighbor, Leodegran, the king of Camelard, asked him for help in a battle. To this Arthur cheerfully consented and gathered his warrior men about him. It chanced, as he and his men were marching past the castle of the Odegren to meet the enemy, the king's daughter, Guinevere, who was the most beautiful lady in all that land, stood on the castle wall to watch her father's allies pass. Now she did not know of all the knights who rode by, which was Arthur. Many wore gold and jewels on their armor, while the king's armor was plain. But Arthur saw her bending over the wall. She was slender and graceful. Her black hair fell in two long heavy braids over each shoulder. Her eyes were large and black. And Arthur felt a warm love spring from his heart for her and said to himself, If I win this battle for Leodegren, I will ask him to give me the Princess Guinevere for wife. His love for Guinevere made him fight even more bravely than usual and he soon won the fight. After he had returned to Camelot, he told his knights that he wished to marry the princess. They were very glad because they too had seen her and thought her the most beautiful lady they had ever beheld. Then Arthur said, I will send my three good knights, Sir Ulfius and Sir Brastius and Sir Bedivere, to King Leodegren to ask for Guinevere. The three knights set forth, feeling certain that King Leodegren would be glad to marry his daughter to their great Arthur. When, however, they came to the castle with their request, the king hesitated. He bade them wait for a little while in the room adjoining his large hall. Then he said to himself, Arthur has helped me indeed. I know too that he is powerful, but I hear strange stories of his birth. There are people who say that he is not a king's son. However great he is, I cannot give him my only daughter unless he is really a true king, born of royal blood. He called the oldest knight in his kingdom and said to him, 
Do you know anything about Arthur's birth? The old man looked very wise and said, There are two men who do know. The younger of them is twice as old as I am. They are Merlin and Blaze, the master of Merlin. Blaze has written down the secret of Arthur's birth in a book. Then King Leodogran laughed a little and said, My friend, your words have not helped me much. If Arthur had not helped me in my time of need, more than you have helped me now, I should have been lost indeed. Go and call Sir Ulfius and Sir Brastius and Sir Bedivere. So the old man brought in the three knights, and Leodogran said to them, I hear strange tales of your king's birth. Some say that he is indeed the son of the late King Uther, but others say that he is the son of Hector. Do you believe that he is Uther's son? They said yes, and then told King Leodogran that Sir Hector had brought up King Arthur as his son, for fear that those who wanted the throne would kill the child, and that Arthur was undoubtedly Uther's son. Still, King Leodogran could not make up his mind. He bade the three lords remain with him for a few days. Meanwhile, the beautiful Queen Bellison came to the court, and Leodogran asked her advice. Do you think Arthur is a great king, he asked. Will he always be great? He is very great, said the queen, and all his people love him. Perhaps he has not many lords, but their deep love makes up for their small number. That may be true, replied the king. Besides that, added the queen, they are good men. As you know, the knights of the round table are bound by vows to be kind and true and merciful and helpful. I have heard it said the king. Moreover, went on Queen Bellison, Arthur has powerful friends, Merlin the magician, and the Lady of the Lake, who gave him his sword Excalibur, and the three fair queens who will help him when he needs help most. Yes, yes, said King Leodogran. If all this is true, Arthur must prevail over his enemies. But is he the son of King Uther and Queen Agurn? You are the daughter of Queen Agurn by an earlier marriage, and therefore Arthur's half-sister, if Arthur is really Uther's son. You ought surely to know the truth. Belsant waited a little while and then said, I do not know what the truth is. There are two stories. The story Merlin tells, and the story Blaze tells. Merlin says that Arthur is Uther's son, and indeed, I should like to believe it. But you are not sure? asked the king. I am not sure. For my mother, Igern, was dark, and King Uther was dark. Their hair and eyes were black like mine, yet Arthur's hair is bright as gold. Besides, there is the story of old Blaze. What is his story? He says that Uther died, weeping because he had no heir. Then Blaze and Merlin, who were present at his death, passed together out of the castle. It was a stormy night and as they walked along by the lake, they were forced by the roar of the tempest to look out upon the waves whipped by the wind. Suddenly, they saw a ship on the water. It had the shape of a winged dragon. All over its decks stood a multitude of people shining like gold. Then the ship vanished, and a number of great waves began to roll in towards the shore. The ninth of these waves seemed as large as half the sea. It was murmuring with strange voices and rippling with flames. In the midst of the flames 
was a little fair-haired baby who was born to Merlin's feet. Merlin stooped and picked it up and cried, The king, here is an heir for Uther. This, King Leodegrin, is the story Blaze told me before he died. King Leodegrin wondered very much, then he said, But did you not question Merlin about this? Yes, answered Queen Bellicent. I asked him if the story of Blaze was true. He would only answer me with a riddle. As King Leodegrin was still silent, she said, Do not fear to give your daughter to Arthur, for he will be the greatest king the world has ever seen. Leodegrin felt less doubtful. While he was thinking, he fell asleep and had a dream. He saw in his dream a field covered with mist and smoke, and a phantom king standing in a cloud. He heard a voice which said, This is not our king. This is not the son of Uther. But suddenly, the mist disappeared, and the king stood out in heaven, crowned. King Leodegrin took this dream for a good sign. He called the three knights, Sir Ulfius, and Sir Brastius, and Sir Bedivere, and said to them, Say to your king that I will give him Guinevere for his wife. So the three hastily returned to King Arthur, who was overjoyed with their message. In the month of May, he sent Sir Lancelot, the son of King Ban, for Guinevere. When she came, the archbishop married them, and he blessed them and said that they, with the help of the knights of the round table, must do much good for the land. The Coming of Gareth The beautiful Queen Bellicent had many sons, all of whom had gone out in the world, except the youngest. His name was Gareth. His two brothers, Gawain and Modred, were with the good King Arthur, and Gareth longed to join them. His mother, however, would not let him go. You're not yet a man, she said. You're only a child. Stay a little longer with me. So Gareth stayed. One day he came to his mother and said, Mother, may I tell you a story? Gladly, she replied. Then, Mother, once there was a golden egg, which a royal eagle had laid, away up in a tree. It was so high up that it could hardly be seen. But a youth, who though poor was brave, saw it and longed for it. He knew that if he could get it, it would bring wealth and prosperity to him. So he tried to climb. One who loved him stopped him, saying, You will fall and be killed if you try to reach that height. Therefore, the boy did not climb, and so did not fall. But he pined away with longing till his heart broke and he died. Queen Bellison answered, if the person who held him back had loved him, that person would have climbed and found the egg and given it to the youth. That could not be, said Gareth. Mother, suppose the egg were not gold, but steel, the same steel that Arthur's sword Excalibur is made of. The queen grew pale, for she now understood his meaning. But Gareth spoke on. Dear mother, the gold egg is the glory to be won at Arthur's court. I am the poor youth and you are the one who holds me back. Mother, let me go. Then Bellison wept and said, Oh, my son, do not leave me. You love me more than Gawain and Modred. You are all I have left in the world. But Gareth replied, Mother, I waste my strength here. No, no, she said. You shall hunt. You shall follow the deer and the fox, and so grow strong. 
Then I will find you a beautiful wife, and we shall all live together till I die. Gareth shook his head. No, mother. I do not want a wife until I have proved myself to be a worthy and brave knight. I wish to follow Arthur, my good king and uncle. Perhaps he is not the true king and your uncle, Bellicent said. At least wait a little till he has shown himself to be the greatest king in the world. Stay with me. Nay, mother, he said, I must go. Then the queen thought of a plan which she hoped would soon make him willing to stay home. If I let you go, my son, you must make me a promise. The promise will prove your love to me. I will make a hundred promises, cried young Gareth, if you will let me go. Then she said, You must go in disguise to the court of Arthur. You must hire yourself out as a kitchen boy. You shall wash the pots and pans for a whole year and tell no one that you are the son of a queen. Queen Bellicent was sure that Gareth would not wish to make such a promise. He was silent a long, long time. He had hoped to take part at once with the knights of the round table in great deeds. At last, he said, I may be a kitchen boy and still be noble in heart and mind. Besides, I can look on at the tournaments. I shall see King Arthur and Sir Lancelot and Sir Kay. Yes, mother, I will go. Queen Bellicent was very sad. All the days before Gareth's departure, her eyes followed him until he felt that he could not bear to see her grieve longer. So in the middle of the night, he rose quietly and woke two of his faithful servants. They dressed themselves like plowmen and started towards Camelot. It was Easter time, and the young grass was a bright green. The birds were beginning their chirping, although it was not yet light. As the dawn came, they saw the early morning mist sweeping over the mountain and forest near Arthur's city of Camelot. Sometimes the mist drew away and showed in the distance the towers gleaming like silver. One of the servants said, Let us go no further, my lord Gareth, I am afraid. That is a fairy city. The second said, Yes, Lord, let us turn back. I have heard that Arthur is not the real king, but a changeling brought from fairyland in a great wave all flame. He has done all his deeds with the help of Merlin's enchantment. The first spoke again, Lord Gareth, that is not a real city, it is a vision. But Gareth laughed and said, Arthur is real, flesh and blood, a brave man and a just king. Come with me to the gate of this city, and do not be afraid. When they reached the gate of the city, they stared in amazement. It was made of silver and mother of pearl. In the centre was carved the figure of the Lady of the Lake, with her arms outstretched in the form of a cross. In one hand she held a sword, and in the other a censer. On both sides of her figure was carved the story of the wars of King Arthur. Above all were the figures of the three queens who were to help Arthur in time of need. The three looked till their eyes were dazzled. Then they heard a peal of music, and the gate slowly opened. An old man with a long grey beard came out to greet them, and returning led them up past the gardens and grooves and roofs and towers of Camelot to Arthur's great palace on the summit of the hill. Gareth hardly thought of the splendours of the palace. He approached the arched doorway of the assembly hall, thinking only as his heart beat quickly, that at last he was to see the good King Arthur.
Even before he entered, he heard the voice of the king. For it was one of the days when Arthur was giving judgment to his people. The king sat on a throne made of gold and ivory and ebony. On its arms and back were carved great dragons. Arthur wore a gold crown which was not brighter than his own beautiful hair and beard. His eyes were as calm and clear as the sky in summertime. His trusty knights stood about him on each side of the throne. The tallest of those, who had a worn face and piercing dark eyes under frowning brows, must be Gareth knew, the famous knight, Sir Lancelot. As Gareth entered, a widow came forward and cried to Arthur, Hear me, O king. Your father, King Uther, took away a field from my husband, who is now dead. The king promised us gold, but he gave us no gold, nor would he return our field. Then Arthur said, Which would you rather have, the gold or the field? The woman wept, saying, O king, my husband loved the field. Give it back to me. You shall have your field again, said Arthur, and besides, I will give you three times the amount of gold it is worth to pay you for the years King Uther had it. Gareth thought that Arthur was indeed a just king. And while this was passing through his mind, another widow came forward and cried, Hear me, O king. Heretofore you have been my enemy. You killed my husband with your own hands. It is hard for me to ask justice or favour of you, yet I must. My husband's brother took my son and had him slain, and has now stolen his land. So I ask you for a knight who will do battle and get my son's land for me and revenge me for his death. Then a good knight stepped forward and said, Sir King, I am her kinsman. Let me do battle for her and right her wrongs. But Sir Kay said, Lord Arthur, do not help a woman who has called you her enemy in your own hall. Sir Kay replied Arthur, I am here to help all those who need help in my land. This woman loved her lord, and I killed him because he rebelled against me. Let her kinsman go and do battle against the man who has wronged her. Bring him here, and I will judge him. If he is guilty, he shall suffer. While Gareth was listening to the king's words, a messenger entered from Mark, the king of Cornwall. He carried a wonderful gold cloth which he laid at Arthur's feet, saying, My lord, King Mark sends you this as a sign that he is your true friend. But Arthur said, Take back the cloth. When I fight with kings who are worthy men, after I've conquered them, I give them back their lands and make them my subject kings and knights of the round table. But Mark is not fit to be a king. He is cruel and false. I will not call him friend. The messenger stepped back in alarm. Arthur said to him kindly, It is not your fault that Mark is unworthy. Stay in this city until you are refreshed and then go back home in safety. While the king judged other cases, Gareth looked round the great hall. Underneath the fourteen windows he saw three rows of stone shields, and under each shield was the name of a knight. If a knight had done one great deed, there was a carving on his shield. If he had done two or more, there were gold markings. If he had done none, the shield was blank. Gareth saw that Sir Lancelot's shield and Sir Kay's glittered with gold. He looked for the shields of his brothers, Sir Gawain and Sir Modred. Sir Gawain's was marked with gold, but Sir Modred's was blank. Meanwhile, Arthur had judged all the cases. Then Gareth came forward timidly and said, Lord King, 
You see my poor clothes. Give me leave to serve for twelve months in your kitchen without telling my name. After that, I will fight. You are a fair youth, Arthur replied, and you deserve a better gift. However, since this is all you ask, I will put you under the care of Sir Kay, who is master of the kitchen. Sir Kay looked at Gareth with scorn. This youth has come from some place where he did not get enough to eat, he said, and so he thinks of nothing but food. Yet if he wants food, he shall have it, provided he does his work well. Sir Lancelot, who stood nearby, said, Sir Kay, you understand dogs and horses well, but not men. Look at this youth's face. See his broad forehead and honest eyes and beautiful hands. I believe he is of noble birth, and you should treat him well. Perhaps he is a traitor, Sir Kay said. Perhaps he will poison King Arthur's food. Yet I believe he is too stupid to be a traitor. If he were not stupid, or if he were noble, he would have asked for a different gift. He would have asked for a horse and armor. Let him go to my kitchen. So Gareth went to the kitchen, and there he worked faithfully at hard tasks such as cutting wood and drawing water. Sir Lancelot spoke to him kindly whenever he passed him, but Sir Kay was always very strict and severe. Sometimes Gareth grew discouraged and wished his mother had not exacted such a promise of him. Whenever there was a tournament, he was happy. He liked to watch the horses prancing and the brave knights riding with the sun shining on their helmets and lances. And he would say to himself, Only wait till the twelve months have passed, and then I shall ask King Arthur to let me do some brave deed. Perhaps someone will come to the hall and demand to have a wrong righted. Then I will beg the king to let me do that act of justice. Such thoughts kept him cheerful. And indeed, before many weeks, his chance came for doing a great deed. Good night. <laughs>